go around this sin. I want to read verses 1 through 5. And then just first nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. This prophecy of Isaiah, this word that is given to Isaiah, this is learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, through which we see unfolding of the whole of human, human history and even beyond the end of human history into the consummation of all things and eternity. Let's read together. O house of Jacob, beginning at verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Verses 11, let us rest as the height of the mountains and shall lift it up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and light, light of the Lord. Verses 11 and 12, the haughty looks of man of the Lord, Lord that he may teach us his ways, that we may... Verses 11 and 12, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Verses 11 and 12. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for days. Thank you that they have significance and meaning. Thank you that the days of history from the first days of creation have led to the latter days. And thank you that there is a day at the end of the latter days, which is your day the day when you will be vindicated, righteousness will be vindicated, you will be honored, your people will be delivered. And after that day, the day which knows no end. We bless you, Jesus, for what you have secured for your people. And as we come to your word, please help us again. We need your spirit. We understand it. So please hear our cries for your spirit to take your word and with your word, encourage the hearts of your people, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. There are a few folks uh, I've not um, met before, and so as far as I know, you're here with us for the first time. We welcome you. We're thrilled that you're here. We hope it won't be the last time. Let me just uh, tell you that we've been looking at this passage in Isaiah for the last three weeks. Uh, and the illustration that I've used uh, with us as we've continued to look at this passage, Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, and then these uh, couple of verses, 11 and 12, that we're going to look at uh, today as well. The illustration that I've used uh, to explain sort of how the Bible works in one sense, uh, to explain my own fascination with this passage, is, um, 
is the magic eye phenomenon. You may remember it from the early 90s, these um, computer-generated graphic things that just look like lines and maybe geometric shapes, and, and you wonder why anybody would want to sell something like this, and you really wonder why anybody would want to buy something like that. Um, but then as you're standing there looking at this thing, the store owner comes up to you and says, keep looking, keep looking. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? And suddenly as you look more and more deeply, you begin to see it. There are dolphins coming out of the wall at you. There are dolphins frolicking among coral reefs, things that you couldn't see initially, but that you begin to see as you keep looking. And that's what we're doing with this passage. We just, we just kind of keep looking, or at least I do, and, and you're stuck with the consequence of my continued looking at this passage. But you begin to see wonderful and fascinating things as you look. And what I want to do with you today is begin to think with you about some of the implications of what it is that we've been seeing. I was given a gift uh, this week. It just people are wonderful. You people are wonderful, and and uh, you you're kind. I mean, you're kind with your words. You're kind with your emails, and and uh, you give gifts to to me and to Barb. And I was given a gift this week, and it it was a gift of a book. People around here know that I love books, and I was given a book. And in the book, the author is doing what is so very hard to do. He, he's He's trying to explain how it is you connect the Bible to life, how you make this connection between the Bible and life. And, and he just points out what, what is really an occupational hazard, frankly, of ministers. They go off to seminary. They learn how to interpret this thing. They learn how to, to do Hebrew and Greek, and they, and they understand historical redemptive things and theological things. And the thing that they really don't teach you to do very well when you go to seminary is take all of that stuff and connect it to the places where people live. Right? Well, that's what I want to try and do. I want to try to make some of those connections. For the last three weeks, we've been sort of looking at this thing in a sort of a theoretical way, if you will. We've been trying to look at the text and make sense of the text. Well, what I want to try to do today is is ask, what difference does all of this make? This latter-day stuff that Isaiah is talking about in verse 2. What difference does it make? That's the kind of thing that I want to do with you today. And I have to emphasize again that this whole process, this whole attempt at trying to connect the scriptures, the the black words on a white page, the, the truth of God that's been preserved for us, kept for us because God is gracious and kind and he doesn't want us walking around in darkness. This truth of God, the way it begins to get connected to life has to do with seeing. I have to, I have to mention this again. That this whole thing starts with seeing. Verse 1 tells us that Isaiah saw a word. He didn't just hear a word, but he saw a word. And, and there is with the Bible what Edith Schaefer called a way of seeing. There's a way of seeing. There is a seeing that goes on when you come to the scriptures. And the great challenge, it seems to me, of being a Christian the great challenge, particularly for a people who live in the kind of culture in which we live, a culture in which the only truly real things are the things that you can see, 
right? The things that can be weighed in a scale, the things that can be measured, the things that can be touched and tasted, the things that, the things that you can look at, the truly real things we think in a culture like ours, the great challenge of being a Christian is to see what you can't see. And yet that's what we're called to as Christians. And that's the hardest of all things. To see things that you can't see. And and what happens when you come to Christianity and what happens when you come to the Bible is that you're actually stepping into a different world. You're stepping into a different world. And folks, it is the real world. Trust me, it is the real world. There's a, there's a vocabulary here. There is a way of thinking here. There is an understanding that is here. And you step across a threshold from the world of the seen into a different world where you just have to see differently. This is not the world of political sound bites and talk radio rants. This is not the world of carefully crafted images. Let the reader understand. Let the listener understand. Tiger Woods. Does your heart break for that man? This is not the world of carefully crafted images. This is not the world of style over substance. It is not the world of TV and Hollywood. It is not the world of political posturing and photo ops. This is the real world. It is the world of sin and brokenness and death and redemption. It is the world of creation and fall and redemption and final restoration at the end of human history. That's the real world. And that's the world that you step into when you step into the world of the Bible. And it takes seeing differently to live in that world. It takes what I continue to believe is the hardest thing about the Christian life, believing. Believing. Faith. Entrusting yourself to someone and to things that you can't see. Invisible forces that are at work moving all of human history and the entire cosmos to a predetermined end. That's the world of the Bible that we entrust ourselves to. So there are two worlds. There's the world of the seen and there's a world of the unseen. And I think this Christmas season is the perfect illustration of both. And the question is, what are we going to see? What are we going to see? What are you going to see? Are you going to see the world of decorations and Christmas lights and gifts and meals? That's wonderful stuff. But are we going to see more deeply? Are we going to look more deeply to see, to see what is simply the single most significant event in all of human history since the creation. The single most significant event in all of human history that sets in motion a series of events that have forever changed the world. 
will we see these things? So as a result of these things, as we attempt to see them, we ask, what difference does it make? What difference does it make that God the Son took to himself a nature like yours, that he came into this world, and he came into this world to alter everything. He came into this world And when he came into this world, he brought with him the days of which Isaiah speaks. He came as a king and he brought with him the latter days. That is what Hebrews 1, 2 tells us. In the days gone by, God spoke in many ways at many times. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And when the son came, Luke 1.32, he came as a king. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. That was the word to Mary. He came as a savior. He came as a deliverer. That was the word to the shepherds. Luke 2.11. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Messiah, Christ the Lord. And he is also the kurios. He is the king. He is the savior king. When he comes, he himself is the announcement that those days which Isaiah saw down the corridor of history, he himself is the announcement that those days have come. And so the difference, or the question then is, what difference does all of this make? Well, let me suggest some ways in which it makes a difference. Ways in which we see everything differently because of what happened. First is personal. Very, very personal. Because of what happened, I see myself differently. I see myself differently. I know how I can see myself. I know how I can see myself. I know, in fact, how other people do see me. I know how my wife can see me. I know how my children do see me. I know how my conscience sees me. I know how my great adversary sees me. The one who is, who is pleased at any opportunity to craft a list of indictments against me. who is willing at any moment to put on that list all of the polite and impolite sins, infractions, disobediences of my life. I know what I can see. And I I know my congregation pretty well. And I know that among my congregational members, there are those who see themselves 
so well and so clearly that they can barely get out of bed in the morning. Because what they see and what they feel and what they carry every day is shame and guilt and sorrow for being weak, for having failed, for having sinned in some particular way, not one time, not a second time, but again and again and again in the same ways. How many times have you heard me say, if only for one day I could be in your skin instead of my own. Oh, I know, I know what I can see, but how do I see myself? Remember what we said last week? Remember what we said when we talked about verse 2 of Isaiah 2? It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, shall dwarf Everest, shall dwarf the Himalayas, shall dwarf the Alps, shall dwarf every hill. And why is that? Because on this mountain, in this house, which is the temple of God. You know what happened? Do you remember what happened? The one to whom all of these things point came. The perfect temple. The perfect priest. Offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. Isaiah isn't talking topographically. He's not talking geologically. When he talks about this mountain and hill being raised up and dwarfing all of the others, he's speaking in a profoundly theological way, in a profoundly redemptive way. This mountain will be elevated and exalted because on this mountain, my sin, as Paul says in Colossians 2, the list of accusations against me, every accusation, the things I know, the things I don't know, the weaknesses and frailties that I'm aware of the things I have no knowledge of, all of it. You see, I use this imagery with people. All of it will be taken away. I will be stripped naked. Of my uncleanness. And all of it will be nailed to a cross. All of it will be nailed to a cross on this mountain, in this house. By the perfect temple, the perfect priest who offers himself as the perfect sacrifice as a substitute for the sinner. And because what was prophesied in verse 2 of chapter 2 has in fact happened, I can see myself differently. I can see myself as clean, I can see myself as forgiven. I can see myself as accepted and reconciled to the infinite personal God who is really there, who is holy, who as verses 11 and 12 indicate is going to come at the last day, at the end of the latter days. And when he comes, he will bring low, he will squash, he will exterminate everything that is proud and lifted up against him. And that was me. 
But you see, on this mountain, in this house, which is God's temple, the one who didn't deserve to be crushed was crushed in the place of the one who deserves to be crushed. And so Paul can write. When he writes to the Romans, he can say in Romans 5.1, listen to this, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. In Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love Martin Luther. I mean, I don't love everything about him, but I love a lot about him. And what I especially love about Martin Luther is when he, understanding the absolute sufficiency of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus for him, speaks back to the devil when the devil would accuse him and drag before his eyes this limitless, endless list of wrongdoing. Martin Luther would say to the devil, go Back to hell where you came from. Because you have no place here. You have no place here. My blessed Savior has died for that. And I'm forgiven and free. Peace with God. No threat of condemnation. How do you see yourself? See, among all of the things that you're required to believe, called upon to believe, encouraged to believe as a Christian, I think that's the hardest. To believe that because of what somebody else did, you are perfectly forgiven and free and accepted by the infinite personal God who is really there. How do you see yourself? That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Because of what happened, I see the present differently. I see the present differently. How do you see the present and how does it affect you as you look at the world around you, as you think about the world around you? How do you see the present? Do you see the present in light of what is between the next to the last phrase of verse 2 in chapter 2 and the last phrase? of of verse 2 in chapter 2. Something happened between the next to the last phrase and this mountain which will be the highest of mountains will be lifted up above the hills and then the next phrase and all the nations shall flow to it. Something happened in there between those two phrases and the thing that happened that we can look back on from this perspective is that after this death there was a burial, there was a resurrection, there was an ascension And there was the eternal Son of God having vanquished sin and death, being robed and clothed with the regal splendor, the kingly splendor of his Father. After the death and resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ was ensconced, seated upon a throne, there to rule and reign. That happened in the latter days, dear friends. That is Isaiah 9. This government that I referred to early, this government that is referred to in Isaiah 9, 
This government that is put upon the shoulders of a a son who is given, a child who is born, this government which will know no end, this reign of peace and righteousness which will be eternal. When did that happen? That happened when the Lord Jesus Christ, after his death, burial, and resurrection, ascended as a glorified king to sit upon a throne there to rule and reign forever. When, if you look around you, and if you listen around you, if you just listen to the world according to Sean Hannity, if you just listen to the world according to James Dobson, if you just listen to the world according to Wolf Blitzer, if you just listen to the world of the press journal or the Wall Street journal or any other journal, if that is all you see, you'll despair. But I don't despair, friends. Do I like it? Am I happy about it? Is it a pleasant thing to see the coarsening of the culture? Is it a pleasant thing to see the loss of the the leavening influence of the gospel of Jesus in this culture? Is that a pleasant thing? No, it's not. But I don't despair. I don't despair. Because as John understood and wrote in Revelation 1 verse 5, Jesus Christ is called the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the king of the kings. But you've got to look beyond Sean Hannity and the Wall Street Journal and everything else and all of the hand-wringing and the grieving and all of the... You have to look beyond that to see the exaltation of the King of glory. And I do not despair. How many times in Paul's letters particularly 2 Corinthians, which is a letter about suffering. It's a letter about trial. It's a letter about how many times in those early chapters does he say, therefore, we do not lose hope. Therefore, we do not lose heart. How can he say that? Because he sees beyond what he can see, looking at things that he can't see, which are the more real things. So I see the present differently, and that leads... To this third thing, I see history differently. I see all of human history differently. I see my history differently. I see the history of nations differently. I read verses 11 and 12. What is history? How does the Bible view history? How does the Bible see history? It sees history as a collection of days, lots and lots of days that lead to the latter days. And the latter days come when the king of the latter days comes. He inaugurates his kingdom. He begins his kingdom. And at the end of those latter days, there is a final day. There is a last day. Let me plead with you that you contemplate that, that you think about it. There is a last day. And on that last day, verse 11 tells us, chapter 2, he alone will be exalted. 
And if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian who knows that because of the finished work of Christ, because of the forgiveness and freedom, reconciliation, adoption, that you have received these blessings that come with the Messiah because of his work, if you are a Christian, you do not fear that day, you rejoice in that day, you know that will be a good day because on that day the righteous king will vindicate righteousness and every injustice, every wrong, every deceit, every charade, every photo op, every photo op will meet its just reward. I tell you, it's a, it is a heartbreaking and terrifying day to contemplate when you contemplate that day vis-a-vis those who are apart from Christ. That is a terrifying prospect. I could slip another one in here. When you contemplate history in this way, it changes the way you pray. You pray differently. You pray that the kingdom will come, that the will of God will be done. You pray that mercy will be extended to those who need mercy. You pray that God will show it in multiple ways before that day. But for the Christian, that day is a day of vindication. It is a day when all pride, all arrogance, all selfishness will be brought low and all that is untrue and bankrupt will be exposed. And you see, the Lord of the kings of the earth is moving the days of history through the latter days of history to the last day inexorably, meaning there is no force, no power that can slow or stop the movement of history in the direction of that day. And so it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And then here's another thing. I see myself differently because of the cross. I see the present differently because of the lordship of Christ. I see history differently because of his rule and reign. And I see life differently. And here's the other image that I used, I've used. As I live now in the latter days, and they are the latter days because Messiah brought them. They're not the latter days because things have gotten worse for us. Messiah brought the latter days. And all of those days lead to the final day of the Lord before the restoration of all things. I live I live in the mountains. Remember? The mountains are the image, the picture of the latter days. In the distance, it looks like a single range of mountains. You say you're almost there, but when you get to the eastern slope of the mountains, you begin to realize that there are lots of peaks and valleys, lots of passes you have to go through, lots of threatening weather, lots of uncertainty before you traverse the final distance to the western slope of the mountains. We live in the mountains, friends. And so we see life differently. And while on the one hand, we have great expectations in the midst of this life, on the other hand, they are tempered expectations. They are realistic expectations. There are peaks. There are valleys. 
There are highs, there are lows, there are joys, there are sorrows. These are days of partial fulfillment. Many of the blessings of Messiah and his reign have come, but much, indeed most, is yet to be fulfilled. People ask me sometimes, you know, you sort of meet people in the in the grocery store at the gas station, people say, how's life treating you? My answer is always mixed. But God is treating me well. Life is mixed, my friends, because we live in the mountains. We live in this period between the first advent of the king and the second advent of the king, at which time the mixedness will go away. And the full pleasure and joy and benefit and blessedness of what Christ has come to do, what Christ has come to do when he came to fix and alter everything, that day is yet to come. Remember what I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when I mentioned John, I just, I've I've read the revelation dozens of times, more times than I can count, but I swear to you, verse nine was never in my Bible before two weeks ago. John writing to his brothers and sisters describes himself as a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. The tribulation, John writing not about some distant place and time, writing about his place and time, describes himself as a partner with his brothers and sisters in the tribulation and the kingdom. Folks, you know, you're like that poor kid at the lake who's got a foot on the dock and a foot in the boat. (laughs) That's a precarious place to be. And that's what life feels like, because that's where you are. You have a foot in this life and world filled with tribulation and you have a foot in the kingdom. And so your life for the rest of your life, you may expect to be mixed, a mixture of joys and sorrows, blessings and heartaches. But the foot that is in the kingdom is the foot in the new order of things, the new world which is emerging day by day and week by week and which will become its final, complete, consummate expression at the return of Christ. And then finally, I see the church differently. How do I see the church? How do I see myself in it? Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. We are the Zion... We are the Jerusalem. We are the place where the king of glory reigns, along with all believers across the face of the earth, among the nations of the earth, who continue, as Isaiah prophesied, who continue to come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let us go to Zion to hear the word that comes from his lips. We, the church, the church of Jesus Christ, not this church alone, but the church in the world, the church among the nations. This is the Jerusalem of God. This is the Zion of God, united to Jesus, 
who rules and reigns from the new heaven, the new earth, the new Zion, the new Jerusalem, and from whom the word sounds forth and is going out among the nations. That's how we see ourselves. You know, there are between 120 and 150 million Christians in China. You know that people are being converted out of the darkness of Islam in places like Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan and Indonesia. Why is that? Because the King of Glory is sending forth this powerful, transformative word out into the nations of the earth. This is being fulfilled right now. And so we see ourselves differently. We are a part of a centuries-old, worldwide nation converging upon the nations and conquering the nations, not with guns and bullets and bombs, but with the word of Jesus. That's who we are. And so we get, we have the privilege of being involved in places like Tanzania and London and through RUF and Youth for Christ and the Refuge and CareNet. Through those things, people are hearing the gospel. The word is sounding forth. So how do you see How do you see? How do you see yourself? How do you see the present? How do you see history? How do you see life? How do you see the church? As we come to the end of this year, God, give us grace to see things as they really, really are. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to see the unseen things that are more real than the things we can see. Help us to see these invisible forces and powers, these realities that are at work. Give us grace to believe, to trust, and to entrust ourselves to these things. Lord, if you don't work, this is sham and show. So we call upon you and beg you that in this year to come, we would be the beneficiaries. We would be the ones to experience your work, your grace, your mighty enabling power in our lives and through our lives out into the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Number 318 is not a first Advent carol. It is a second Advent hymn. During this season of Advent, we look not just back to the first Advent, but we look ahead to the second Advent. The tune will be familiar if you've never sung this before. We're singing it to, interestingly enough, a Christmas carol tune. So let me have you stand and sing. Lo, he comes with clouds descending. Number 318.